0: This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sira, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Qalam Institute. Bismillah In alhamdulillah wa salatu salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Shallah. continuing with our study of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, sallam siratu Nabawiyyah, the prophetic biography. Um, insha'Allah from next week because of uh, daylight savings time insha'Allah the class will be after Salat al-Isha so um, I believe Salat al-Isha I think is around 7.45 uh, from next week because of daylight savings time so it will be after Salat al-Isha so in the previous session we talked about the Muslims of Medina the Ansar who came to the season of Hajj who came to Mecca basically and accepted Islam and gave the oath and the pledge of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ and at the same time entered into an agreement to host not only the Prophet ﷺ but all the believers that were living in oppression in Mecca and to host them and basically serve as a base for for where Islam could not only develop but flourish and spread from there as well. we also talked about last week that when these Muslims of Medina, when they went back, then some of the events that transpired and how they made, it, they made it publicly known that there were this many Muslims now in Medina. And the fact that they were opening their doors, their homes, their city to many, many more Muslims coming and arriving there. And that the arrival of the Prophet ﷺ was not too far, uh, you know, was was in the very near future inshallah What we'll be talking about today is the migration to Medina actually being implemented. So some of the first initial groups of people that began to migrate from Mecca to Medina. We'll begin by mentioning a narration that is mentioned in the Sahih of Imam Bukhari, Rahmaullah, where Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha relates that the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, and he was in Mecca at this time and he turned to the believers in Mecca and he said, I have been shown where you will migrate to, the place where you will go and you will reside. Uritu Sabhatan that I have been shown a place that is very fertile, very fertile. The soil is extremely fertile, and it is a place where there is a lot of growth of date palms, and it is between mountains. There are mountains that are around that place. And he was basically referring to Al-Madinatul Munawwara, in another place, in another narration, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiallahu ta'ala anhu relates uh, that the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Imam Bukhari also mentions this as well, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, fil manami min Makkah ila biha that I was shown in a dream. And of course, we've talked about this quite a bit earlier at the time when we discussed the beginning of Revelation, that the dreams of prophets, alayhi الصلاة والسلام, are also a form of divine inspiration and divine revelation. So the Prophet ﷺ says that I was shown in a dream that I will migrate from Makkah, I will leave Makkah and go to a place where date palms grow in great abundance. فَذَهَبَ وَهْلِي إِلَىٰ أَنَّهَا أَوْ هَجَرِ and he said, initially, I thought that this could be, could this could be the place of Yamama, or this could be the place of Hajar. Fa هِيَ al Madina, al Madina Yathrib. But in reality, in actuality, it is the city of Yathrib, which would became become known as the city of Medina. There's some weaker narrations that I that are very interesting. They're weak narrations, no doubt, but they're very interesting. Where there are some narrations that also talk about where the Prophet ﷺ, he initially when he mentioned to the sahaba radhiyallahu ta'ala anhum that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is about to provide a place where we will be able to go wa antum ta'manuna biha and you will be safe in that place you will no longer have to deal no longer have to deal with this persecution and oppression that many of the sahaba began to speculate that he was talking about what we call like modern day Bahrain or some other regions or some some areas in al-Sham. That the speculation of the sahaba, their minds initially went to places like Bahrain or bilad al-Sham, where like the modern, what is called the Levant, uh, classically parts of modern day Syria or even Palestine. That initially their thoughts went there. But in, in reality it came out to be the city of Yathrib, the city of Medina. This goes back to reaffirm a previous point that I had made that The place of Medina Yathrib, was a very small, humble place. It was a very small, humble place. It was a farm town for all intensive purposes. The people who lived there were mostly, most of them were illiterate. They were not very wealthy. A lot of them lived in even a lot of debt. And their primary means of sustenance was farming. And even in that, they had a lot of financial difficulty and struggles. Not only that, but one of the things that we'll talk about later on in the future coming sessions is that when the Muslims began to go to Medina as well, many of them began to fall ill. So Medina itself, Yathrib, wasn't seen as an ideal place where people could move to. But that's the place that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose. And again, it goes back to reaffirm that idea that, you know, there, sometimes there are very, very humble beginnings. But it is the acceptance and the blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that grants success. Success is, lies within the acceptance from Allah and the blessing from Allah. Medina might have been a very small, humble place with very small, humble people. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepted these people and accepted that place. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed those people and blessed that place. And that's what made it such a remarkable place that as we welcome the Hujjaj back from Hajj even, many of them visit, you know, either before Hajj or after Hajj, they visit the city of Medina and they bring back fond memories from there and they're so overwhelmed by the experience that is there for, four, for 1400 years. That has become a central place and location for the ummah. And it's a dream of people, it's a great blessing for a lot of people to be able to visit that place. So it goes back to reaffirm that idea. Now that this was established that this was the place, so th- another narration of Ibn Ishaq in the books of Siyar mentions that when the ayah came down, "Udhina لِلَّذِينَ yuqataluna biannahum zulimu." That those people that were being fought against, those people that were being oppressed, it was established that they were in fact the victims of oppression and violence and aggression, and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is fully capable of helping them and aiding them. These were people who were ousted from their homes wrongfully, wrongly ousted from their homes only based on the simple fact that they said our Lord and our Master is Allah. At this point in time, the Prophet of Allah sallallahu sallam commanded the believers, commanded the Muslims to leave their homes in Mecca and began the migration to Medina. So they started leaving in small, small groups, a few individuals, a few families. They started leaving Mecca and they started making their way to Medina. At the same time, the news had reached that small community of Muslims that were living as refugees in Habasha, in East, Af- in East Africa, and Abyssinia. The news also reached them that this Darul Hijra has been established a place where you can go and seek sanctuary, and live freely and practice your faith, and eventually, hopefully very soon, be in the company again of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Such a place has been established. So the narrations tell us, the books of history tell us, that not all of the Muslims left... Abyssinia Habasha but many of them began to leave Habasha and make their way to Al-Madinah al many many people like Uthman ibn Affan radiyallahu ta'ala anhu the daughter of the prophet sallallahu who was his wife and many other people began to leave Habasha and make their way to Yathrib Al-Madinah al the blessed illuminated city of Medina. and the prophet Allah sallallahu made the announcement in Allah Allah has provided brothers and sisters for you. People that will host you. وَدَارًا And He's provided a place, a home, a city where you will be safe. So the narration tells us, arsalan Right, so they started leaving towards Medina in groups after groups after groups. But the Prophet of Allah remained in Makkah waiting for the command from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for he himself to migrate and leave Makkah and go to Medina which was something the Prophet ﷺ was greatly looking forward to, to be able to establish a community now. Because now was that time, now was the situation, now was the place where a community needed to be established. So the Prophet ﷺ was waiting, but he had to wait for the command from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And not only that, but there's a profound wisdom in this fact as well, that the Prophet ﷺ was overseeing, he was supervising the departure of Muslims going from Mecca to Medina. The narrations mentioned that some of the first people who, some of the initial folks, people who migrated from Mecca and went to Medina, amongst them was Abu Salama. Abu Salama radiallahu ta'ala anhu was one of the early believers. Him, his wife Umm Salama, if the name rings a bell, then this is one of the future, as Mutaharat. This is one of the future Ummahatul Mu'mineen, mothers of the believers, wife of the Prophet ﷺ. But at this point in time, she was married to Abu Salama. And of course, the reason why they're called Abu and Umm Salama is because they had a son by the name of Salama. So they, as a family unit, they all three of them, had migrated initially to Abyssinia, to East Africa. And at the announcement of this Darul Hijrah, Medina being established, they came back from Habasha from East Africa, and their intention was to come back here, to gather their things, to gather their stuff, prepare everything, and set out from Mecca to Medina. So these were some of the initial people who migrated from Makkah to Medina, and it also happens to be one of the most powerful stories and narratives, and one of also, one of the most touching stories of people, some of the early Muslims who made this sacrifice and went through and endured a lot of hardship and sacrifice to make the move from Makkah, Medina. As I mentioned last time, when we think about the hijrah, we think about migration, we think that's it now, it's victory, open season, the roads are open, everybody's traveling out, you know, excited and happy, takbir, takbir, Allahu Akbar, and everybody's leaving. But that wasn't the case at all. It was life-threatening, it was very difficult, it was a very arduous journey. And not only that, but the people of Makkah themselves did not like this idea that all of a sudden everybody was packing up and leaving. They felt like these people were, were winning, that this was like a victory for them. So they didn't like this idea. We even talked about in the last session about how the Quraysh sat down with the Ansar and said, why are you doing this? Do you understand that you're entering into a conflict with us? By doing this, by giving refuge and sanctuary to Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam and to his followers, you are directly entering into a conflict with us? Do you understand that? So the Makkans didn't like this idea. So Umm Salama, radiallahu ta'ala anha, her son Salama relates from her, um, from his mother that أَجْمَعَ Abu Salama Al Huruj al Madina that when Abu Salama got everything together, made the preparations and said, Alright, let's set out towards Medina, he prepared the ride, the animal, and loaded all the stuff on top of there. And you know, I sat down onto the camel and he handed our son to me, who sat in my lap, who sat in front of me. I held on to him. And وَكَانَا ثُمَّ خَرَجَ يَقُودُ بِي بَعِيرَهُ Then he started to leave Makkah, holding the rope of the camel, walking us out. We had not gotten very far when Bani Mughira, Umm Salama belonged to the family, the tribe of Bani Mughira, Banu Mughira. She says that Banu Mughira showed up and they said, هَذَا نَفْسُكَ غَلَبَتْنَا عَلَيْهَا that you and your fanaticism, your obsession with Muhammad and this religion, this has taken our daughter away from us. You've, you've, you've snatched her away from us. You've deluded her. This is you and your fanaticism, your obsession. So they said that, as far as this woman is concerned, she belongs to our family, and we will not let you take her. She belongs to our family, our people, and we're not gonna let you take her. So they started fighting. Some of the men gathered together and they started fighting with him. And Abu Salama's holding on for dear life onto the rope, trying to fight them off. And they were able to push him aside, shove him aside, there were many of them. And they snatched the rope of the camel away and they started taking me away. And I'm screaming and my son is crying and my husband is on the ground being pinned down, held down by these men. And they're taking us away. Try to imagine that scene, how tragic that is. She says this was all transpiring, this was going on when before we realized it, Banu Abdul Asad excuse me, Banu Abdul Asad Banu Abdul Asad was the family of Abu Salama. Banu Abdul Asad some of their people showed up. Some of their men showed up. And they said, wait, 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 what's going on over here? And they explained that, look, he's trying to take uh, our, our family member away, and we're not gonna tolerate this anymore. So, Banu Abdul Asad, they said that, well, he's a grown man, he can make whatever decision he wants to, we're not gonna force him. But this child, this boy, this son, Salama, especially because of the children being attributed to the father, and then on top of that, based on the culture and the society of that time, this is a boy, this is a male. So this is somebody who carries on "quote unquote" the family name, the tribal pride. So they said, "Well, this boy, you know very well our customs and our tradition. He needs to be with us. He's ours. He represents us." So they said that. They said, ibnana indaha min sahibina." So we're not going to leave our son and our heir with her. So she goes on to explain, ابن, بَيْنَهُمْ حَتَّى خَلَعُوا يَدَهُ بِهِ بَنُو عَبْدِ الْأَسَدِ And she said, they started fighting and trying to snatch my son out of my hands, out of my arms. And my husband gets back up again trying to fight. And again they pin him down, they push him down and they're able to snatch my son out of my hands. And they grab him and they walk away with him. Banu Mughira my tribe's people, they grab me and tie me up and walk away with me and abu salama is sitting there beaten bruised with just his hands empty trying to figure out what just happened and so she says all of this occurs wahabasanani banu mugira indahum my own people banu mugira took me back to where they lived where the tribe lived and they restrained me they tied me up and they locked me inside of a place inside of a room and they kept me as a prisoner. And my husband after realizing, not knowing what to do anymore, he went ahead to Medina to try to see if he could go there and rally some support and figure something out. She says, so, فَفُرِّقَ بَيْنِي ibni, ibni zoji. We were three. And all three of us were in three different places, separated from one another. All three of us heartbroken. She, of course, narrating the story, she says, "Fakuntu أَخْرُجُ كُلَّ غَدَاتٍ فَأَجْلِسُ فِي الأبطح. After a while, they allowed me to kind of leave the restraints and leave the room, but they'd keep an eye on me to make sure I wouldn't run away. So every day in the morning, I would go and I would sit outside. And I would sit outside there, فَمَا azalu abki حَتَّى Umsiya. She said, and I would sit outside and I would cry and i would cry and cry and cry and i wouldn't stop crying until evening time would come and then they would take me back in sanatan minha she says it was about a year went by like this not even realizing how much time went by because just my morning and night became one all i did was cry i didn't know what to do there didn't seem to be any hope in this situation hatta bi min bani ammi ahad ahad She said, until one day, one of my cousins, one of the men from Banu Mughira, and he was apparently somebody who held some authority amongst Banu Mughira, he passed by and he saw my situation. He saw me day after day, just spending my days, just crying outside, crying throughout the night. And فَرَحْمَنِي And he felt sorry for me, he felt bad for me, he had mercy on me. فَقَالَ لِبَنِي أَلَا تُخْرِجُونَ هَذِهِ الْمِسْكِينَةِ Why are you doing this to this poor woman? You've made your point. She's been here for a year. You've ripped her heart out. Just leave her now. Let her be. وبين وبين you separated her from her child and from her husband. What are you doing here? So the men of Banu Mughira realizing they came to me and they said, Al zawjaki in Shiiti. Go and join your husband if you want to. She says that I went from there to Banu Abdul Asad, and I told Banu Abdul Asad, look, you've made your point, what's the fruit? What's the benefit of this? All three of us are leading a miserable life. Let us be together again as a family. So Banu Abdul Asad also realizing the situation, they returned my son to me after a year. So she says, فَرْتَحَلْتُ ثُمَّ أَخَذْتُ إِبْنِي فَوَضَعْتُهُ فِي ثُمَّ أَخَرَجْتُ أُرِيدُ زَوْجِي So she says, my husband has no idea of what's going on. He's there in Medina, still trying to figure out some situation. So she says, I've retrieved my son, I was able to get a camel, I prepared the camel, put some provisions on there, got on the camel myself, again put my son in my lap in front of me, secured him, and I set out on my way towards Medina. And she says, وَمَا wama أَحَدٌ Ahadun min اللَّهِ There was nobody else, no other human being that was with us. And the reason why that's so profound again is that think about the journey from Mecca to Medina. How long of a journey it is. Today we make a journey in buses. You know, driving 60, 70, 80 miles per hour. And it still takes us five hours to get there. Imagine what that journey must have been like for a woman and a child by themselves. Riding on a camel through the desert. Think about what's going to happen when nighttime comes. And being alone in the wilderness together. How are they gonna fend for themselves? What are they gonna do if they get attacked? There's, there's, there's highway robbers, there's thieves, there's murderers, there's all types of things out there. So she says, but what, we were, what were we supposed to do? So she says, حَتَّى إِذَا كُنْتُ I was at the place of Tanaim, which is one of the Miqat, right outside of Mecca. So she says, when I reached the place of Tan'im, I met Uthman bin Talha bin Abi Talha, who, was, who belonged to the people of Banu ad dar Uthman bin Talha. Uthman bin Talha is the person that him and his family, they were in charge of the keys to the Kaaba. They were the family that were in charge of the keys to the Kaaba. They were considered nobility of Makkah. They were noble people of Mecca, they were good people. And so they had been entrusted with the keys to the Kaaba. She says, I meet Uthman bin Talha over there. And by the way, I should add here as a note, he's not a Muslim at this time. He would accept Islam, Uthman bin Talha would accept Islam after Salah So he would accept Islam many years later. You know, seven years later. Six years later, he would accept Islam. So he's not even a Muslim at this point. He sees them there, and he says, إِلَا أَيْنَ يَبْنَةَ ta'abi أُمَيَّ Where do you think you're going? So she says, I'm going to go join my husband in Medina. He says, "Awamā ma'āki aḥadun." There's nobody traveling with you? That's bizarre. Nobody's gonna be traveling with you? She says, no. مَا مَعَيَ أَحَدٌ إِلَّا اللَّهِ وَابْنِ Nobody's with me except for Allah and my son of course. That's all we got. We just got Allah. So he says wallahi malaki min matrakin he says that i can't leave you like this she says fa bi al so he takes the rope of the camel fa yahwi be. and he starts walking and going pulling the camel along and she says even before we read the details, she says, wāllāhi مَا saḥibtu رَجُلًا مِنَ الْعَرَبِ قَدْتُ أَرَىٰ كَانَ أَكْرَمٌ مِنْهُ She says, Wallahi, I've never come across any man from the Arab. I never came across any man who was more noble than Uthman bin Talha. Even at that time. Before he had even accepted his song. And she talks about, كَانَ إِذَا بَلَغَ الْمَنْزِلُ أَنَا خَبِي So, We started walking and traveling. It's daytime, he's just pulling the camel along. Okay, so far straightforward, simple. Me and my son are sitting on the camel. He's walking ahead with his back towards us, holding the rope of the camel and just walking along. Okay, no complications. Evening time sets in, the sun starts to set. I can't travel in darkness, the desert. What do you do? You have to stop, you have to stay somewhere. So she says, when a place came for us to stop, anachabi, he made the camel sit down. ثُمَّ اسْتَأْخَرَ عَنِّي Then he walked away from the camel. With his back still towards me. حَتَّى إِذَا نَزَلْتُ Until I descended down from the camel. استأخرا بعيري, استأخرا then he, after I got down from the camel and took my son and moved off to the side, then he came back ask for permission, I need to take the camel to go make sure that it eats, it's all good, clean it off, we'll give it whatever it needs. Then he came and he took the camel, ثُمَّ قَيِّدَهُ فِي الشَّجَرَ And then he tied it to a tree. ثُمَّ تَنَحَّى إِلَى شَجَرَةٍ تَحْتَهَا Then that same tree that he tied the camel to on the side, he lied down, turned over, lied down under the shade of that tree, and that's it. Where he was clearly visible next to the camel. فَإِذَا Dana Rawahu, When the morning time came again, and we never heard from him throughout the night, he just stayed there. When morning time came again, he got up, got the camel, untied it, got it ready to go, and then he brought it, فَقَدَّمَهُ فَرَحَّ لَهُ He put everything on there, and he sat the camel down. And then again, ثُمَّ سَأْخَرَ Anni. Then again he walked away from the camel, with, our, with his back towards us. And he said, go ahead and please get on the camel. So she says, فَإِذَا عَلَى Ba'iri After I got onto the camel and I was all set, and I got my son on there into my lap and everything was good, Then he came back, And then again he started walking with the camel, on foot the entire way, and leading the camel. حَتَّى until again night time comes. And then when night time comes, she says, فَلَمْ يزل يسنع ذلك المدينة. Then again night time came, he went through the same procedure, all the same precautions, making sure I was comfortable, I was not threatened, until we reached Al المنورة. فَلَمَّا نظر إلى قرية بني بن عوف Then when he got close to Medina at the place of Quba, the suburb of Medina, we all know the masjid of Quba. We all also know that that was a place where some of the family members from the grandmother's side of the Prophet Wasallam he had family in that area, he had uncles in that area, and that was the place where the Prophet Wasallam stopped first. Even on his hijrah, on his way to Medina. So when he reached near the place of Quba, Quba was by the way the place where a lot of the initial people when they started making migration from Mecca to Medina, they were initially stopping over in Kuba. Quba. So when he reaches the place of Quba, he says, fi He says that your husband should be here in this town. And she says, Wa kana Abu Salaman biha nazalan. Nazilan, excuse me. And Abu Salama was residing here in this town because he was still living here, trying to figure out how to reconcile and fix the situation with the whole family being dispersed. So he hadn't gone and permanently settled in Medina, he was still there in Quba. Ha ala barakatillah, and he said, "Enter into the town. I'll leave you here at the border of the town. Enter into the town, on the blessing of Allah, and you should be okay from here." Thumman sarafa raji'an ilamaka, and this man Uthman bin Talha was from Makkah. So right there, didn't even go inside. Wait for a thank you, thank you very much. Nothing like that. Didn't wait for any pat on the back or thanks or whatever from outside of the city of Quba, he said, you should be able to enter in from here. Lots of your people are here, your husband should be here as well. And he turned around and went, walked all the way back to Mecca. Went on his way back to Mecca. فَكَانَتْ تَقُولُ مَا And Umm Salama used to say even later on, when she would narrate the story, when she would tell the story, she would say, Ma أَعْلَمُ أَهْلَ بَيْتٍ فِي الْإِسْلَامِ أَصَابَهُمْ مَا أَصَابَ آلِ أَبِي سَلَمَةٍ she says, I don't know any family from the Muslims that went through what the family of Abu Salama went through. What our family went through. But she also used to say, وَمَا رَأَيْتُ قَدْتُ كَانَ مِنْ عُثْمَانِ بِنْ But at the same time, I never ever met a man, I've never seen a man who was more noble than Uthman bin Talha. And the narration goes on to inform us, it goes on to tell us, Aslama Uthman bin Abi Talha Al Abdari Hada He accepted Islam after the Sulh of hudaybiyah after the Treaty of hudaybiyah meaning six years, at a minimum six years after this point. Almost seven years later. And then after accepting Islam, later on when Khalid bin Walid would accept Islam as well, him and Khalid bin Walid made the hijrah and the migration together. Like they say, game recognized game, right? So mashallah, him and Khalid bin Walid, they make the migration, they make the hijra to Medina together. Wakutilah, uhud Abuhu wa ich wa wa kilab wa wa and even though many of some of his brothers and his uncles had been killed during the Battle of Uhud, but he accepted Islam at that time. الله الله عم, شايبة, and that's when when the Fath of Makkah occurred, when the conquest of Makkah occurred, the Prophet sallallahu returned to him and his cousins. Who were members of that family? Who were supposed to be the caretakers of the keys of the Kaaba? They were initially taken away from them when the fat, when the conquest of Mecca occurred. The Prophet ﷺ took those keys and he gave it back to them. And this was when the Prophet of Allah ﷺ recited the ayah: "Inna Allaha ya'murukum amanati ila ahlihā." Allah ﷻ has commanded you to return, trust, amana, thing that return the trust back to who it belongs to. Offer the amana to whoever it is that it belongs to. So this was from the ethics of the Prophet Wasallam. And we see that, you know, even... And this is a very profound lesson in this regard. That a lot of times, you know, especially what we've read about the seerah up to this point, it seems like this major conflict, this this very... You know, a uh, terrible situation, in reality it was. But a very, you know, we, we've read a lot about the tragedy and the conflict and the violence and the oppression and the aggression. But what we have to understand and appreciate is that even at that time, where majority of the inhabitants and the people in Mecca were very opposed to the Prophet ﷺ, were very opposed to Islam, were part of a lot of this oppression and violence. And many times, even if they weren't the perpetrators of it, they were tolerating it, they approved of it. Whether explicitly or implicitly, they were approving of it. But at the same time, even in that situation, in that circumstance, there were noble people like this. This man was not a Muslim at this time. He was not a Muslim. And in spite of that, not only does... There's two things you have to appreciate. First of all, this is a man of character. This is a man of integrity, a man of nobility that he would behave in such a noble manner and fashion. You know, first of all, a lot of times we talk about chivalry being dead. Right, how many, how often would it be that somebody would see, you know, uh, a sister with a flat tire on the side of the road and just keep on driving. I gotta do what I gotta do, I got somewhere to be. So just keep on driving by. He could have done that. He could have just seen a woman and a child there and be like, I'm getting out of here before I get pulled into this situation. So, first of all, this is a man of consciousness and nobility. That he understands that there might be somebody distressed, there might be somebody who needs some assistance. Number two, he forget about taking advantage. I mean, that's a really, really bad quality. I mean, that's 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 a terrible, terrible sin. And that really shows some really bad character on the behalf of the person that he would rob or well ayadu billah, take advantage of a woman. Abuse a woman in this situation. That being beyond him, he goes to such great lengths, and inconveniences himself so much, and is so cautious and careful, to make sure that she never even feels slightly nervous or threatened. That look, look how she describes and defines the way that he behaved. Walking away and speaking from far away, and tying up the camel far, and lying down next to the camel so that he was visible. I mean, think about the character of this person. How much dignity, how much honor this person has. And then on top of that, consider the fact that he's a disbeliever, not a Muslim. In fact, many of his family members are very opposed to Islam. As it mentions, that his brothers and his uncles die in the battle of Uhud. Why would they die in the battle of Uhud? That means they went to Medina to fight the Muslims, to burn Medina to the ground. So his family members, he comes from a family that is a part of the opposition. And he knows that this woman, Um Salama, is a Muslim. But that doesn't interfere with his dignity and his honor and his honesty in this situation. His integrity, a man of integrity. And on top of that, when he finally does deliver her to her destination, He's not looking for any praise, any thanks, any reward, even though that would be completely justified. Completely. At the very least, he could have said, I need, uh, I need a hot bath, I need some warm food, and I need a place to sleep. I need a soft bed. A hot bath, some warm food, and a soft bed. Just give me that much for a night so I can make my way back. At least provide me a horse or a camel so I can ride my way back to Makkah. No, 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 no. He's not gonna have any of that. I did this because this was the right thing to do, subhanAllah. I did this because this is the right thing to do. So he takes her right outside where he can see homes and people and women and children. Takes her right there so she knows she's safe. She takes two steps and everyone sees her and she sees everybody. He leaves her right there two steps away from everyone's eyes. And says, you should be good from here and just quietly turns around and walks away. Not even giving her the chance to say thank you. Just walks away. And walks his way all the way back to Makkah by himself. The character of this person. Without a doubt, you know, and we've talked about this before, this type of integrity and quality and character was obviously something that was recognized within him by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because Allah made him, Allah created him, Allah put these qualities in him. And this is what was recognized within him because of which he was blessed with with Islam. We obviously understand that. But the other fact that I also want to point out is he doesn't accept Islam for another seven years. What well, this is also a very profound lesson for us and very, very relevant to our circumstances today. We live as a minority in a non-Muslim majority. And even though our situation isn't, I know that there's Islamophobia, and there's some, you know, a slant and a bias in the media, and etc, etc. Our situation isn't anywhere close to Makkah. Isn't anywhere close to Makkah. If you have any doubts about that, go look outside. That's the most elaborate construction I've ever seen in my life there's there's a 70 foot crane outside putting up like humongous walls it's unbelievable right so we're nowhere near the situation of makkah look at this we live freely we practice freely you know we have our families we're safe and sound and secure alhamdulillah alhamdulillah but occasionally from time to time we are faced with some adversity and some difficulty there's islamophobia There's some other incident that occurs. There's a slant in the media. Somebody is saying something against Muslims. And it starts to become a very tense situation. We, this is an imtihan and a test from Allah for us. Not just a fitna that could threaten our lives or our safety or whatever the case may be. It's also a fitna and a test of our own integrity. Our iman, our honesty, our sincerity that do we become so bitter in response to the ramblings of a few fools that we begin to paint everyone with the same brush? We dismiss everyone and anyone? And that we don't recognize any good qualities in anyone at all? We also have to think about that. You know, I've had you know, we've all had these types of experiences. This is a personal story that I've shared, you know, a few times. I'm not, I'm not sure necessarily if I've shared it here, but a very, very personal story that, you know, I grew up here in the Dallas area, actually in Arlington, and back then there were very few Muslims. Like, I'm talking about a handful of Muslims. Like, this is unimaginable. Just the congregation we have here. This, there weren't this many Muslims in the entire metroplex. As many Muslims as pray Salat al-Maghrib. There weren't that many Muslims in the whole metroplex. A handful of Muslims, a dozen Muslim families. At that time, we lived in an apartment complex. And uh, around that time, my mother was very seriously injured. She had an accident, and her arm was completely shattered. She had to have like multiple surgeries to repair her arm. I was very young at the time, I was maybe five, six years old at the time. I had a younger sister who was a year old, a baby. My father, you know, like a lot of immigrant families, was working, you know, two jobs, trying to make sure that, you know, we were okay and we were settled. And so it was a very difficult situation. There wasn't any family, any support, any community. What do you do in that situation? I mean, my mom had the whole, where they put the pins and needles and this whole contraption. She was in the hospital for a couple of weeks, you know, tons of medication, and it was just a really, really tough spot. Now, what do we do in this situation? We had a neighbor, an elderly, semi-somewhat retired, non-Muslim couple, elderly people. They had a daughter, she was grown up, off at college. Elderly people, southern, you know, proper Texan, elderly, retired folks. And they live next door to us. We had had, you know, a few pleasant exchanges. Hi, howdy, how are you, what's going on, etc. So this woman comes over, when she kind of saw the fuss and everything that occurs, and everything that happened, she comes over and she said, you know, she comes to visit, make sure everything's okay. Hey, Sunnah so of the Prophet salallahu right? Visiting a sick person. She comes over, checks on us, makes sure everything's okay. And she sees five, six-year-old kid in the house, a baby crawling around, and a woman sitting there with her arm inside of this contraption. And my dad sitting there with his hand, head in his hands trying to figure out, what are we gonna do in this situation? And she says at that time, she says, let me help you guys out. Now again, being immigrants, they're they're equally freaked out. They're like, well, we don't know non-Muslim people, what's going on, what's not going on. But beggars can't be choosers, what are you going to do? And she said, no, I understand, you guys have your own culture, your own religion, you have your own situation. So she said, I'll come over here. I'll, I'll come here. And my dad used to have to go to work, you know, five, six in the morning. She would come over every morning make us breakfast. It's, it's not. We're not even paying this woman. Just of the goodness of her heart, she'd make, make us breakfast, make sure I got dressed for school, make sure I had my lunch, pack me a lunch, make everything out of her own home, make sure so that, you know, because of the halal concerns. She'd look after my sister, a baby, clean the diaper, give the bath to the baby, change the clothes, everything even make sure my mom was okay. And she kept this up for months. We developed such a relationship. Was, she was like an aunt to us. And eventually being kids, right? You, I mean, you know how kids are. They don't understand the difference. And it's an apartment complex. So the doors are like eight feet apart. So in the evening time, you know she'd come to check or whatever and then when she'd go into her house sometimes I'd run in after her want to go hang around at her house so she said but wait a second she came and spoke to my mom she said you people have certain restrictions some some things you're particular about my mom said yeah so she told her husband from now on no more pork comes in this house anymore these kids they come over here sometimes they, I try to go over there as much as I can. They follow me here sometimes. No more, we have to respect them. She didn't drink but her husband who was an old man, you know, used to still kind of drive a truck, a semi. Used to drink, you know, beer or whatever. And so she said, not in this house no more. Old retired man, he threw a fit. He's like, this is my house. And she just looked at him. You know when the wife looks at you? Just quietly, silently? 30 seconds later, he walked out. No more beer in the house. And we, we just the, the generosity, the integrity, the honesty, the quality, unbelievable. And we ended up knowing this woman for many, many years afterwards. And subhanAllah, when she was on her deathbed, alhamdulillah, my mom was able to have her read the kalima. But... At the same time, the point that I was trying to explain that we learn from this story, a very valuable lesson is that we can't overlook the good in the people. Can't paint everyone with the same brush. We can't make the same mistake that they do. Otherwise, there's no difference between us and the crazy people amongst them. Where we just hate. Unrestricted, unbiased hate. That's not our deen. Our deen is one of love, of concern, of compassion, mercy understanding. And that is that compassion is what bring, brought people closer to Islam. And whenever we come across people that have this type of good and khair, and then we appreciate them for the good and the khair that they have in them, and we have the hope that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward their good and their khair with iman, with Islam. So a very powerful lesson from the story of Umm Salama, and at the same time not losing sight of what we were originally talking about what we were originally talking about and that is the beginning of migration from Mecca to Medina and the great sacrifices and the great trial and tribulation that many of those early people went through. The narrations go on to tell us that there were other early individuals who went, Amr ibn Rabi'ah, Abdullah ibn Jahash, there were a lot of the... These were some of the early, early people that went and all of them basically initially settled in the place of Quba, which was outside of Medina, still trying to figure out what the permanent situation was going to be. And of course that would only be figured out and you know um, settled when the Prophet of Allah would finally arrive. And the uh, next session inshaAllah, that's pretty much what I had you know studied and researched and prepared for today. So I know we still have some time left, but... It's, you know, preparation's important and I don't like to, uh, go forward without having done the research properly. In the next session, inshallah, we'll talk about Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu making the migration, the hijrah from Makkah to Medina. Of course, that's another very colorful story. And then we'll talk about some of the other people who made the hijrah, made the migration from Makkah to Medina, which eventually led to the Quraysh going on high alert. They went on high alert and that's when they started targeting people. People like Suhaib, Ar-Rumi and others, they started targeting them um, to prevent them from migrating from Makkah to Medina. And eventually, then we'll talk about the migration, the hijrah of Rasulullah himself. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi. Subhanakallah Bihamdiq. bihamdik. Nashad wa ilaha illa anta. Nasagfrik wa natubu ilayk.